This is the Axiom Podcast, episode 27. I'm your host, Joey Brannon. Welcome back to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. It is Black Friday, and we are recording from Defuniac Springs, Florida, up visiting family. So we got our mobile setup today, not in the home office studio. Uh, we're going to be talking about the six questions that every business owner should be able to answer. And this is a, a topic that we've wanted to do for a while, and there are elements of other podcasts in here. So there's obviously... Um, a lot of depth in this topic. You could probably go on and on. We're going to try to get it done in about an hour, maybe less. We'll see. And the the impetus for the topic comes out of work that we've done with business owners. And you can tell when you walk into, or not when you walk in, but when once you've sat down with a business owner who really has their stuff together, you can tell because they start to talk about these things. The stuff that we're going to talk about today you might call basic blocking and tackling in terms of leadership and productivity and good business ownership. But it's one of those things that you'll often find business owners who have one or two of these areas covered, but it's a little bit rare to find somebody who has all six covered. So that's why I wanted to put them together in one podcast, because I think when you meet somebody who can answer all six of these questions, it's pretty obvious that they have their act together with their business. Their businesses tend to be doing very well. They tend to be growing. Their people tend to be highly engaged, and they're perceived not just as good uh, as good business people, but really as effective leaders. And that's one of the things that we aspire to help our clients be is not just better at business, but better at leadership. So the number one question is something that we talked about in last week's podcast podcast. We talked about last week uh, cash strategies. And so the question that I think all business leaders should be able to answer is what is my cash balance plus or minus 5%? I don't mean to the exact penny or the exact dollar, but plus or minus 5% on a day in, day out basis. I think you need to know what that cash balance is. And why is that important? Well, up to, at a certain le- once you get beyond a certain level, it's not that you need to know it so that you won't bounce checks. Although, for a lot of struggling businesses, that's a very good reason to know exactly what your cash balance is. But beyond a certain level, once you reach a certain cash threshold, it may not make any difference uh, whether you know the balance or not, whether checks are going to bounce or not. You, you have sufficient cash reserves. You have followed some of the advice we gave last week about cash strategies, and you've got your two to three months of operating expense reserve or more if you're truly, you know, really knocking out of the park and very healthy business. But one of the things that I think knowing your cash balance means is that you're watching your numbers and everyone knows that you're watching your numbers. I've been in businesses where my responsibility as the CFO was to provide ownership with the daily cash balance. We had to do a daily cash reconciliation and that number needed to be on the owner's desk or in the owner's email by like 10, 30, 11 o'clock, definitely before lunch, hopefully before mid-morning had come and gone. The owner knew exactly what the cash balance was. And for the people who were on that leadership team and were reporting to the owner, they understood 
that the owner was watching the numbers. And so th- there's a couple of a couple of things or there's four I think there's four areas that I think knowing your cash balance really points out or helps you understand and helps others understand that you know your numbers. The number the number one number that feeds into cash is sales. So if you understand what your cash balance is, you understand the effect that sales is having on your cash balance. Now, if you're selling all on credit, then that's the second number that feeds into this. But in terms of cash sales, knowing your cash balance and knowing the effect that that cash sales have on your balance from day in day out gives you a much better understanding of your cash cycle and then the role that customers play into that. The second area is collection. So if you do sell a lot on credit, knowing how much you collected in accounts receivable yesterday and got to the bank yesterday and made it into your cash balance this morning at 1030, make sure that you understand not just that selling stuff is important, but collecting the cash on it is important. And you understand you know, what, if there are big receivables out there and you see the cash balance go up, you probably understand that, well, that was probably from that big customer that had that big outstanding receivable that we were waiting for. And I asked my, my, uh, my controller about it yesterday, and today cash balance is up, so they must have been able to collect that cash receivable or that accounts receivable. The third area that knowing your cash number indicates you're watching is expenditures. So if I know my daily cash balance, I'm also aware, typically, of the money that's going out of the business, what's being spent, either on day-to-day operational expenses or even things like capital expenses, replacing equipment, large down payments that might have been due on a new piece of machinery that we're going to implement, or um, amounts that, that might be paid on major contracts for service providers that are coming up. And then the fourth area that if I know my cash balance, I'm probably watching this number as well and understand its impact on cash is debt service. So if you have mortgage payments and you know cash balance is, is down by $10,000 and it's a couple days within your mortgage payment, you go, okay, the, the mortgage payment went out. Now, that may sound very elementary, but in the world of of business ownership and leadership and being at the top as the CEO and going from meeting to meeting to meeting, it's th- there are so many things that can grab your attention and there are so many numbers that you have to keep track of. What if there was one number that gave you a handle on cash sales, credit collections, expenditures going out of the business, and debt service? And that's what we're talking about. It's like how to not just how to kill two birds with one stone, but how to kill four birds with one stone. If you know your daily cash balance, plus or minus 5%, and what I would really encourage you to do, if you've got a full-time person watching the numbers as your maybe full-charge bookkeeper or your controller or definitely if you have a CFO, you should be getting it not plus or minus 5%. You should be getting it to the penny. There are businesses that I've been in where at some point during the morning, somebody comes to the business owner with a little post-it note and on that post-it note is written to the penny how much cash is in the bank that day. Now I think that that's invaluable in terms of efficiency from understanding where your what your numbers are because if I can know what my cash sales were, what my credit collections were, what my expenditures were, and what my debt service was for the immediately preceding day by just getting one number, that's a very good use of my time. The other thing that I think knowing just knowing your cash balance does is it helps temper spending and distributions. 
If you know what your cash balance is from day to day and you go back to the very first strategy we talked about last week in our Cash Strategies podcast, the very first strategy we talked about was having a goal for your cash balance. Like what should your cash reserve, what should your cash number be? So if you have the goal and daily you're getting to dollars and cents what the actual number is, you're comparing that daily number to whatever your goal is and it gives you great incentive, great motivation to continue to press on. One of the things that we advocate for all of our clients is some kind of scoreboard or scorecard that people can walk in and see. And it's just like if you, we did a little video uh, several weeks ago on keeping score. And it's just like when you walk into a high school football game and all you have to do is glance toward the scoreboard and you know exactly where the game stands at that point in time. You know who's winning, you know who's losing, you know how, by how much. If you know a little bit of background on the teams, you know how feasible it is for the, the one who's behind to come back. If you know a little bit about their history, you know who the underdog is, and it gives you a little... All that context is made possible by a scoreboard. Without the scoreboard, all the prior history, all the prior knowledge has no context, and it doesn't mean anything. So this is, a, this is the same with this daily cash number. If I know what my goal is and I have the scoreboard of the daily cash number coming my way every single day and I know to the dollar, to the penny, what's in my cash balance, I'm going to be much more careful about just going out and spending $30,000 on, on a new truck or $5,000 on a new computer or 1500 bucks on a new laptop or whatever it might be, you know, a great new infrared camera. You know, I was working with a client one time and they went out and spent $25,000 on a new infrared camera. Why? Because it was shiny and it was interesting and it was something that the owner was excited about. In the meantime, I could see out a couple of weeks and know that they're going to have a hard time making payroll. So if you get your daily cash balance, then it's going to help you pull back some of the spending. The other area is going to help temper is distributions, the money that the owners are taking out of the benefit for their personal use, the dividends that the business is paying out. So if you have a good, a good understanding of cash, it covers a lot of bases. So I think, what is my cash balance today is the number one question that every business owner should be able to answer, and they should be able to answer it every single day. Second question, what are my break-even sales for this month? Right? And I'm going to spend some time talking about this because we have a special tool that we can give you to help you with this. This is an area that a lot of businesses struggle with, the idea of break-even sales. And they learned, everybody who, who took an Economics 101 course learned how to compute break-even sales in the textbook. But computing it in real life, it's really not hard. But unfortunately, because it's not a habit, most businesses haven't developed the skill of, of understanding how to compute their break-even sales every month. But why do you want to be able to compute break-even sales? What does that tell you about the business? We saw all the areas that cash helped you understand your business better and communicate to those around you, those you're leading, that you understand your business. What is it that break-even sales communicates about your business? Well, the number one thing, I think, is an awareness of seasonality. Your break-even sales this month are not the same as your break-even sales last month. Almost always the case. Your business has ebbs and flows, cycles of seasons that it goes through. Slow periods, really, really busy periods. And your awareness of where your break-even sales are gives you direct insight into how that seasonality is going to affect your numbers. 
It also allows you to manage, this is truly valuable, it allows you to manage during that month to an expectation. If we know what our break-even sales are for the month, we know what the minimum bar is that we have to clear just to, just to break even before we even get to a profit. And that develops a great deal of urgency around our daily activity and the weekly things that you're driving your managers and the rest of your team to do. On, on a yearly basis, understanding your break-even sales helps you understand the size of your customer base in relationship to profits. So I think a lot of businesses get into this complacent attitude of, well, we've got 4,000 customers, or we've got 4,200 customers, or we've got 6,000 customers. So let's say that you have 6,000 customers, but you have no idea that it takes 5,300 of those customers just to break even. So what does that mean for your business? Well, if you've got 6,000 customers, it takes 5,300 to break even. 700 customers are responsible for your ability to stay in business. 700 is not a very big number out of 6,000. So it helps you understand something we're going to talk about later, the importance of those customers and what you should be doing for them. So understanding break-even on a monthly basis, very, very good at, at helping you dissect the seasonality of the business and manage to a minimum bar of expectation to make sure that you at least break even for the month. On a yearly basis, understanding how the size of your customer base is related to your profits, that not all customers are created equally. And while you might have this massively large customer base, it's probably a fraction of a fraction that's actually responsible for your profitability and your ability to continue growing and doing the things that you want to do. From a standpoint of, of your units, so when we talk about break-even, there's two ways to look at your break-even. Break-even can be the dollar sales that it takes to break-even. Break-even can also be the number of units that you have to sell to break-even. So understanding the, the seasonality of the business and the size of the customer base, usually we're talking about those in terms of a combination of dollars and units. So, <clears throat> excuse me. When you when we're lo looking at the number of customers, you, we have to look at well, how often do those customers purchase from us? What's their purchasing frequency? What's their average uh, purchase uh, size? How much are they spending every time they come to us to purchase? But if we just break it down into units, like let's forget about the number of customers. Let's just talk about the number of widgets that we sell. If we understand our break-even in, in terms of the number of units, it helps us understand a lot of things about our purchasing volume. Why is it good for us to know how much we have to sell in number of widgets to break even a month? Well, when you talk about what how much inventory we need to stock, we talk about what our purchasing volume requirements are, when we talk about the connection between moving specific products and financial performance, all of that starts to come into play only once you know what your unit break-even volume is going to be. So when we talk about break-even sales, I think there's a lot, of, the same way there's a lot of benefits and you kill four birds with one stone if you know your cash balance, there's three definite areas that understanding where your break-even point helps you run the business better. It, it allows you to manage to an expectation in your month because you know whether it's a, a slow time or a busy time. It allows you to understand that's how the size of your customer base affects your profits, and it allows you to understand how your purchasing volume 
your inventory stock levels, all the stuff related around the physical products you might sell impacts your ability to make a profit during the year. Now, break-even sales and break-even units is something that I, I said earlier I think a lot of businesses struggle with. The formula is not complicated. Rather than explain the formula in a podcast, which I don't think is the best method, we've actually created an Excel tool that you can use. And if you just plug, you have to plug in just a few numbers. If you plug in your dollar volume sales, your dollar volume cost of goods sold, and cost of goods sold is just the variable cost related to your sales. So if we're talking about a service business, the cost might be the commissions on your salespeople, the commissions that you pay production people, or the variable labor cost you pay the people who are out there mowing the lawns or or um, spraying for bugs or whatever the business is that you you have where you've got this variable labor cost so if you can tell if and if you sell products the variable cost of goods sold are things like your product cost and the labor that goes into converting raw materials into finished goods that you can sell so if you can tell us your sales volume your cost of goods sold we use those two numbers to calculate your gross profit and your gross profit margin and then you need to tell us what your fixed expenses are, things like your rent, um, the manager's salaries, uh, insurance expense, the things that doesn't matter how much you sell, those, those items are overhead and they're going to be there anyway. So if you can give us those few pieces of information, we can tell you what your dollar volume break-even sales have to be. And then if you can give us just a couple more pieces of information, we can tell you how many units you're going to have to sell. So if you tell us what is your average sales price, then we can determine how many units you have to sell. And if that sales price, uh, you could, you can be, get creative in this. It might be that you're, you don't have an average sales price, but it's, maybe it's an average customer order if you're in a service business. If you put your average customer order in there, we can tell you how many orders you're going to have to have to sell. So if you want that Excel template, you can get it from our website. You go to axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 027. There's a place there where you can put your email address in, and we will email you that attachment. Also, if you want to text BREAKEVEN, all one word, B-R-E-A-K-E-V-E-N, text BREAKEVEN to 44222, we can do the same thing. It's going to send you a text message back. You put in your email address, and we'll email you the attachment. So, again, uh, if you want it, uh, go to the website, axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 027, or you can text BREAKEVEN to 44222. So that tool, uh, you can adapt it for your own purposes. It's not locked down. You can see all of the formulas. You can see um, which... The, the cells that you need to change are shaded. The ones that all calculate are not shaded. But you can go in and look at the formulas. You can expand it if you have maybe multiple products or you want to do it for a specific product mix. Use that tool. And if it's helpful, let us know. We like to produce stuff that you guys can use. So number one question, what is my cash balance? Number two question, what are my break-even sales? Number three question, who are my top 20% customers? So one of the things that I like to ask businesses is, do they even know who their top 20% customers are? Now, this comes straight out of the Pareto Principle. Pareto Principle says that 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your clients. And this actually comes from an Italian economist from a long, long, hundreds of years ago, did this study 
where he discovered that 80% of the land in the, in the states in Italy was owned by 20% of the population. And then later, another uh, economist management consultant came along and started to use his work to, to apply that same principle to business. And that applies to a lot of areas of nature. But we, it's, it's also true in a lot of socioeconomic situations and business is definitely one of those where we find on a consistent basis, we do this analysis for clients of ours, and we find that 80% of their business, of their revenue, comes from 20% of their customers. So this means that if you have 5,000 customers, 80% of your revenue is going to come from 1,000 of those customers. Now, 5,000 is a pretty big number. We do business, our, our kind of bread and butter business is businesses from 2 to $20 million in sales. And we've got businesses that do four or five million dollars, and they've only got maybe 150 customers. So of those 150 customers, 20% is what? Uh, about 30 customers. 30 customers are account for 80% of the revenues. Do you think it's important for the business owner to know who those 30 customers are? It's incredibly important. So you need to know not just now. Why do you, uh, so? <laughs> You, you might have guessed by now, there's the question, but there's a lot of stuff behind the question. Like, why do we need to know our cash balance? Why do we need to know our break-even sales? Why do you need to know your top 20% customers? Because just knowing those 30 names isn't enough. What you really want to know is what are we doing this month or this quarter to really deepen their loyalty with us? What are we doing to become more sticky where they know that we appreciate them, they know that uh, we're always looking to improve our service, to upsell our service, to find additional things that are valuable to them that we can deliver. So what are, what are our marketing efforts targeted at? Now, it's amazing to me because a lot of businesses focus on the bottom 20% of their customers, and they want to they wanna find ways to lift the bottom. And the reason they do that is because in, until they really understand the Pareto principle and what's happening in their business, they think that the top 20% are the problem, and that is not the case. Now, it, it, there, there's a corollary to the 80-20 rule where 80% of your, of your revenue may come from 20% of your customers, but there's also this thing where 80% of your problems come from 20% of your customers, right? And so that's why the bottom 20% gets a lot of attention, and businesses spend an inordinate amount of time trying to find ways to increase their marketing efforts, increase their customer service efforts, increase the amount of attention that they pay to this bottom 20%. And the, the issue isn't that the bottom 20% of the problem, the issue is that the top 20% are the reason for your success. So if you're not focused on the top 20%, you have turnover in that top group. And those are very expensive customers to replace. And you're typically not going to replace them by bringing somebody up from the bottom 20%. You have to go out and get a new customer that's going to land in that top 20%. Because they typically, your customers, when they come into your business, they tend to come in and pretty much stay wherever they stay. So if a business doesn't know who their top 20% customers are, I can guarantee you that they are not focused on efforts to serve those people. They're not focused on efforts to deepen their loyalty, to make sure that they're getting not just acceptable customer service, but exceptional customer service so that they retain them and their highest retention percentage is in that top 20% customer group. Now, I think the other thing that this allows you to do as a business owner is 
it gives you a mindset where you don't take your current performance for granted and you're better able to just build a referral business. When you talk about where most of your new customers come from, especially when you talk about new customers who come into the business and then become part of that top 20%, they typically come from trusted relationships and referrals that are already in that 20%. So your top 20% customers tend to refer you customers that look a lot like them or maybe a step down from them. And that's a, a discussion for another podcast. But if you can retain those folks and then they begin to refer other people into the business, it's much, much cheaper growth than having to go out and convince somebody who's never done business with you that they should do business with you because you say so. That's, what, that's essentially what advertising boils down to. Whereas referral, referral growth is the exact opposite. That is other people convincing other people that they should do business with you. When those, when those other people who are referring them in, they basically have no financial incentive to do so. They're just doing it because they care about the other person. The other person has a need. Your top 20% customer knows that you can fill that need, and so they send the customer your way because, because they care about the customer. Now, you, I understand people give referral bonuses and, and appreciation awards, and that's great. I think you should be doing all of those things. But that's typically not why people refer business to you. If you stink at what you do, then it doesn't matter whether you're offering a $50 coupon or $100 off their next visit. People aren't going to refer their friends and neighbors to you. All right, so question one, what's my cash balance plus or minus 5%? Question two, what are my break-even sales? Question three, who are my top 20% customers? And then parentheses, what am I doing this month or quarter to deepen their loyalty to me? Close parentheses. Question number four, what are my top five big rocks this week? Now, big rocks is, is an analogy made famous by Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he talks about the science professor at the front of the room with a big jar, and he says, he puts fills the rock up with these or fills the jar up with these rocks and says is the jar full and the class says yes and then he pulls out a jar of pebbles and he puts the pebbles in and says is the jar full and they kind of catch on then he pulls out some sand puts the sand in is the jar full pulls out water pours the water in is the jar full so the jar is finally full after he gets the water in. so the point of the story is if you don't put your big rocks first they're never going to get in the jar so business owners that can answer the question what are my top five big rocks this week are immediately catapulted to the top tier business leaders that I work with because when you're a business owner the firing gun goes off when you get out of bed and there really is no finish line in sight. Like even when you come home at night, even when you put your head on the pillow, you still believe that things are not done that should have been done. And that comes from an unrealistic expectation of what you can accomplish. So these business owners who have a list of the top five things they want to accomplish that week, they have an understanding. I think this is the, the first point that I really want to drive home. These business leaders have an understanding that their time is not their own. And why is that important? It's important because it really isn't your own. Your time, you don't show up at work just to do whatever you want to do. You show up to serve those that you're leading. And that takes an extraordinary amount of time. So if you don't understand that there are probably five 
maximum big things that you're going to be able to accomplish this next week, then your mindset probably isn't service. Your mindset is on getting your to-do list done. And that's not where an effective leader should be spending their time. You should be spending your time leading, which takes an extraordinary amount of time, which means the other things that you're going to be able to do on your own are going to be limited. So picking out the five things that you want to do this week is why five? Because there's five work days in a week typically. And I think if you can go to if you can go to work with one kind of major focus, if I get this thing done today, I'm going to go home feeling like it was a successful day. What is that one thing? Well, that does does a few things for you. If you can frame your week and your days in that way, number one, it really sets that expectation, a realistic expectation. Number two, it reframes what you think is worthy of your time. If I told you you're going to go to work today and you're only going to get done one thing that you want to get done, is it going to be to change the toner in the copy machine? Right? Is it going to be uh, you know, coiling up the air hose in the corner of the shop? No, it's not. You, you have a highest and best use as a business owner. And if you don't walk in the door with some intention about what that highest and best use looks like that day, you're never going to get to it. So setting a realistic expectation for what you can get done, but also making sure that that thing that you want to get done is worth your time is hugely beneficial to the business owner. If you're intentional about what you really want to accomplish, you'll, you will actually accomplish something. If you're not intentional, then the busyness of the day and everybody's demands on your time, people pulling and pushing you from this place and that place, is going to mean that you really don't get a lot done during the day. The uh, We talked about the Pareto Principle earlier, and... 80% of your revenues come from 20% of your clients. This is equally true in terms of your time management. 80% of the results that you're able to achieve as a business owner come from 20% of the activities that you perform, which means right now, if you're not super mindful of what you're going in to try to accomplish in your business on a day-to-day -day basis, you're really only effective about one day a week. One day in five, you're actually accomplishing results two hours out of eight, one and a half hours out of eight, two hours out of ten, you're actually accomplishing some lasting significant result in your business that only you can accomplish, right? What is your highest and best use in the business? We developed a time management course that we're going to launch in the next few weeks, and we spend an extraordinary amount of time talking to business owners about what is their highest and best use and helping their team members understand what is their highest and best use. If, you're, if you don't have the sense to sit down at the beginning of the week and write down your top five big rocks for the week, you really have no idea what your highest and best use is. And I think the last point I would make about the top five rocks, big rocks, is that you're setting an example for your other managers and leaders in the business. If what you're doing now is walking around with a to-do list that has 200 things on it that you want to accomplish, they're probably emulating you and doing the same thing. And it's all about volume and not effectiveness. You know, if, if I can check off 20 things, if I can just get through this list, and the list becomes a noose around your neck that keeps you from becoming effective, I'd really like you to, if you want, take a look at the list Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. And then... Decide, what if I can only take five things off this list this week, which five would be worth my, my time and my attention? 
you're going to have a much better uh, example before your other leaders and salespeople about how they should be prioritizing what they give their time and attention to. So recap again. What's my cash balance, plus or minus 5%? Preferably, I don't think. I don't think in this day and age with electronic banking and cloud-based accounting services, you should be able to get your cash balance to the penny pretty much every day, and I think you should. Break-even sales for this month. Who are my top 20% customers and what am I doing for them? What are my top five big rocks for the week? And then the next one, what are my top three things today? So we talked. We took from the the week level. What are the five things I want to accomplish this week? Every day, if you walk in the door and you have three things on a note card in your shirt pocket, you're going to be tremendously effective for all of the things that we already discussed about the top five big rocks this week. But there's something extra that I want to talk about from a day to day basis. I think the the one area in business that I don't think gets not business, but in time management and productivity, the area I don't think gets a lot of attention that is huge for me is pace. What is the pace that you work at? When you can walk in with your top three things you want to accomplish that day, you are fully engaged in execution, which means you're able to establish a pace that you want to work at during the day. It's not frenetic. Uh, it's not laid back. It doesn't vacillate between frenetic and laid back, which is what most, usually what we see is people come in at the beginning of the day, especially the business owners, and they're, they're all, they're laid back. They want, they drink coffee, they walk around, they, they hobnob with the team. They really perceive their role as the, you know, the leader that wants to manage and wants to check in with people and make sure everything's going okay. And then mid-morning comes around, and they have a couple meetings. And then before they know it, it's lunch. They come back after lunch. Uh, maybe there's a, a couple of uh, bigger tasks that they want to, to start in on, but they get caught up in this little nitpicky stuff. All of a sudden, it's 3.30, and they are on a mad sprint, trying like hell to get something done that day, something off of that two-page to-do list that they have. And they wind up staying until 6 or 6.30. And as everybody's walking out the door, they, they remember this business owner who came back and was drinking coffee with them and telling jokes and talking about the Monday night football game at 8.30. And everything was all good. And at night, they, you know, they can't be bothered. They don't even want you to say goodbye to them because they're head down in this flurry of activity trying to get something done. That is not a good pace to set for optimum performance. So if you come in with your top three things, that's only three things. It's you know one of those should be related to your top five rocks for the week. But there's a couple other things that are going to pop up during the week. Things that you're gonna, you know that I need to go in today and I need to get these things done. So what are those three things that if I go home tonight and those three things are done, I'm going to feel like it's been a really successful day. The same way we look at those five big rocks of the week and we say at the end of the week on Friday, if I've accomplished these five things, it will have been a phenomenal week. So a business owner who can answer what are my top three things today understands that there's a difference between execution and planning. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this and clients of mine who are listening to the podcast bear with me because you've all heard this analogy before. But when we talk about 
planning and execution, I like to use this analogy of a ceiling fan. So if you have, if there's a ceiling fan in the room you're in right now, look up, and you'll see it's spinning in one direction. Now there's a switch somewhere on that ceiling fan, and if you flip that switch, the switch controls the direction, whether it's turning clockwise or counterclockwise, whether it's blowing the air down or whether it's pulling the air up and blowing it against the roof and down the walls. So if it's if it, the ceiling fan's on now and you reach up and you flip that switch, does the ceiling fan immediately change direction and start going the other direction? No, it, it can't. There's inertia involved and it has to event it slows down and eventually it stops and then it slowly speeds back until it's back up to speed in the other direction. That ceiling fan is your brain. And your brain has two modes that it can operate in, and it can only do one at a time. It can either be planning or it can be executing. And I, I don't know where I heard this. I don't know if I made this up. I don't know if I stole it from somebody's book. I honestly can't remember. I've been talking about this for so long. But when you are in the planning mode, you're thinking about what are the things that I need to do? What are my top five big rocks for this next week? What are the top three things that I need to get done tomorrow? And that planning mode is a very interesting place. You're thinking prospectively about the world. You're thinking about if I do X, then Y will happen. And that's, a, that's an interesting mindset to be in because it's not the here and now. It's the future. And you're having to put yourself in this place where you're imagining things that may happen if you do certain things. And it's it can be a tough place to get into. You often see this in like brainstorming sessions where businesses will put a bunch of people in the room and they'll say, if, if anything we did could be successful, what should we be spending our time on over the next five years? What should be the future direction of this company? And it takes a while for the ideas to start coming. But after a while, after 20, 30, 40 minutes maybe, Everybody kind of gets comfortable. Their brains start, kind of the ceiling fan starts speeding up in this planning direction. And then it's hard to shut them up. Like the world is just full of possibility. And there's all kinds of things that they could do. And then you get into, now we actually have to get the work done, right? And that's a whole different mindset. Getting the work done is not about the future. It's not about the perspective. It's about breaking down a task into its individual component parts and gathering the willpower to get those things done. So when we go from planning to execution mode, this is why David Allen's method in getting things done of understanding your context is so important because when you look at a project and you think about what are all the steps that are involved in this project, that's the planning mode. When you assign a context to those steps and you say these are all the action items that I can get done in the office these are all the action items that I can get done while I'm on the phone these are all the action items uh, I need to get done when I'm out and about running errands when you understand the context then you go into straight-up execution mode and you're in the office and you're only looking at the tasks that you can get done in the office and it's just a matter of motoring through them. And yeah, it does, when you first start, it takes a while for that ceiling fan to speed up. But pretty soon, it's, it's operating at full speed and you're just blowing through tasks left and right. And you have no idea how you got so productive. Well, it's because you've split your brain into these two modes of planning and execution. And you're not trying to multitask where you're, do, where you're jumping between them or this um, fast switching, which has now kind of become the new 
kind of multitasking paradigm of switching between planning, execution, planning, execution. The, the less you can switch, the more you can stay in one of those modes, the more effective you're going to be. So if I understand what my top three things are today, then I'm in a very good place to, to get into that execution mode of having a very consistent pace. And pace is that thing that people will see from the outside. And if you look well composed and you're operating at a pace that's sustainable and you're not hurried, but you're also not dallying, then I think, again, it sets a great example for the people that you lead. And their perception of you as a leader gives you a lot more credibility and allows you to be a lot more effective in your leadership. Not being unrealistic about what you can get done during the day is another huge benefit of just having your top three. Because the mental energy, the mental capital you'll burn up getting discouraged about not being able to get through your to-do list is going to keep you from being effective, whether or not you believe it. It really will. Again, only having three things, I think, gives you some of that margin. The same way only having five things uh, for the week gives you margin to to actually manage people. Just having three things a day that you're really committed to, to accomplishing gives you the margin to stop and pay attention to other stuff. Those three things aren't going to take you all day. You're demonstrating an understanding of the fact that your time is not your own. You're going to walk in the door and somebody's going to need to talk to you. Somebody's going to need help on a special project. Somebody's going to have a new hire that they want you to come in and meet. Somebody's going to have uh, a customer with an issue that you need to go help solve. And if you've only got three things on your list for the day, you will have the margin to go do those things. And I think the biggest benefit of this is something that we talked about earlier. It's that ability to go home and feel fulfilled, feel, feel like what you did that day mattered. It was a successful day. And you actually give yourself the freedom to turn it off and enter recharge mode where you're able to spend time with your family, you're able to get a good night's rest, you're able to do some meditation, spend some quiet time, and come back the next day fully charged and ready to go with your next top three. Now, let me briefly recap because we're coming into the sixth question. First question, what is my cash balance today? Second question, what are my break-even sales this month and this year? Third question, who are my top 20% customers and what am I doing to keep them fully engaged, retained, loyal to us? Fourth question, what are my top five big rocks for this week? Fifth question, what are my top three items that I'm going to get done today? And now the sixth question is who is most and least engaged on my team? So now we get into the real component of leadership, the real component of management, which is helping other people be more effective. And if, you, if a business owner can tell me who's most and least engaged on their team, then I know that they're paying attention to engagement, not just at some 90-day performance review or annual performance review. They're actually paying attention to engagement in the moment when they walk around they're noticing, they're asking questions of themselves about who is most and least engaged. What does engagement look like here? Why is that person engaged? What is it either about them, about the connection between their personality and their job, the management that they're getting, the training they've had? What are the elements that contribute to that full and complete engagement or 
What are the elements that are contributing to that lack of engagement? And I see this so many times, it gets really frustrating. I was in a meeting on Thursday and we were talking about performance compensation and it was a group of other business owners and we're talking about the benefits of performance compensation and the disadvantages of performance compensation, the benefits of traditional just pay for the, the hours that people spend in a business and the disadvantages of just paying for the hours that people spend. And I got, I got kind of passionate about this point in particular is that when you are, if you're not using some kind of performance compensation metric, almost everything that you you evaluate that employee on is purely subjective, right? That's not the point of this. I think everybody gets that. If you don't have a performance management system in place or performance compensation system in place, then what you're really asking a manager to do when they evaluate an employee's performance is give their opinion of that employee's performance. Well, maybe they like the person and their opinion is going to be skewed that way. Maybe they dislike the person and their opinion is going to be skewed the other way. Maybe they're having a really, really good day and their opinion is going to be skewed to the positive. Maybe they're having a really crappy day. It's their birthday and nobody gave them birthday cake that day. And that's going to, I mean, it could be a million things, but it's entirely subjective. That's not the point. I think everybody gets that. Here's the thing that drives me absolutely crazy. Most businesses operate on that subjective evaluation kind of uh, paradigm. The problem and the area that I get really, really fired up about is that when you are subjectively evaluating somebody, you're doing it on a body of evidence that's about five, six, or seven days old. So when you're evaluating somebody's performance, what you're evaluating, not only are you evaluating it subjectively, but you're just evaluating what you just recently saw. You've, you've forgotten about all the other stuff. Or if you haven't forgotten about the other stuff that you saw previously, the fact that the, the stuff that is most mindful is that that's most recent is really diminishing anything that you'd seen previously. It's overriding it. It so colors it. The the, the more recent events so color the total body of experience that that's what you use to evaluate a person. And I think you make a huge mistake when you do that because you don't notice all of the smaller things. All of the what, – what happens is you, you notice the outlying events instead of all the nuances of what is affecting that person's performance. So if you can if – if I have a business owner – who knows at the drop of a hat on your team who is most and least engaged today? Who's most and least engaged this week? How have you noticed their engagement changing from week to week or from day to day? Then it means that they're taking time to notice the smaller things and they probably have some system for keeping track of this stuff. They have a little notebook that they write it down or they they're making a habit to have these daily conversations or to drop in on people or to spend time with their, their managers to understand what the managers think about individuals' performance. And they're noticing what we said earlier, what drives that engagement. Is, you know, is, if I got somebody who's super engaged, why are they super engaged? If I got somebody who's not, why are they not? And you can quantify what those well, we, you know what they're typically called as A players. You can quantify what the A players look like. What what makes an A player? Maybe it's training. Maybe it's a great first orientation day. Maybe it's 
time off to recharge the batteries. Maybe it's a better performance comp plan. Maybe it's uh, the team environment. I mean, there's business. One of the things that's so fascinating to me about business is that there's so many different variables. And if you're not paying attention to these variables on a day-to-day basis, you have really no hope of understanding which ones to change in order to get the outcome that you really want. So building uh, retention for A players in a lot of cases is really about understanding who is most and least engaged and then going a little bit deeper to understand why they're most and least engaged. And you can quantify that and build that into systems that help you with the business as a whole. So I really want to encourage you to write down these six questions. What's my cash balance, plus or minus 5%? What are my break-even sales? Who are my top 20% customers? What are my top five big rocks for the week? What are my top three tasks today? And who is most and who is least engaged in my team? I think if you write down the questions first, it's the first step to really understanding what the answers might be for your business. And if you can get the answers, you're going to have a much more successful business. So that's our topic for today. If you want uh, access again to that template for calculating your own break-even sales, you can go to axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 027, or you can text break-even to 44222. I'm Joey Brannon, and I will see you back here next week.